Straw Hut Media. From a scientific point of view, or rather, a non-religious perspective, the universe and everything within it is chaos. There's no getting out of this life alive. Nothing lasts forever. Science is redefining and re-examining things we take for facts all the time. Today we speak to radio producer Lulu Miller, whose new book, Why Fish Don't Exist, explores the freedom we find when we give up our compulsion to categorize, and how labels within the queer community can be both limiting and liberating. I'm Levi Chambers, and this is Pride. About 13.8 billion years ago, there was a huge explosion that sent energy careening through the vacuum of space. As the universe cooled, subatomic particles and later atoms popped up. Those pieces formed planets and stars and nebulae. One hunk of rock smashed into another hunk of rock, and the combination of nitrogen, carbon, oxygen, and hydrogen percolated together for a few more million years until the first signs of life creeped out of the primordial ooze on our planet. From a non-religious standpoint, there was no plan. Just atoms interacting, forming, destroying, building, changing. And as we as humans developed over 200,000 years or so, we started to try to categorize things. In the mid-1700s, Carl Linnaeus formalized the practice and we ended up with modern-day taxonomy. We throw some lassos around seemingly similar things and try to liberate them from the chaos. But do they really need liberating? Is there a way to find a balance between our innate urge to sew labels onto things and the freedom that comes with letting go? I am Lulu Miller, and I am author of a new book called Why Fish Don't Exist, and mostly I work in radio. Lulu has been a science reporter for NPR since 2013. She got involved with Radiolab back when it was a local radio show in New York City, and ended up working as a producer on the show for five years. In 2015, she co-founded the amazing podcast Invisibilia with another NPR science correspondent, Elise Spiegel. And most recently, she worked as an editor on WNYC's Nancy, a critically acclaimed podcast featuring queer stories and conversations. And yeah, I'm just, I'm a big NPR science nerd. <laughs> That's what I am. <laughs> Lulu's book, Why Fish Don't Exist, came out in April. And it's sort of half memoir, half science history. It centers around a relatively unknown ichthyologist, a fish scientist named David Starr Jordan. You may have never heard of him, but he's definitely the best ichthyologist I know. In fact, he's the only ichthyologist I know. So I had no idea truly that I'd like spend basically 10 years of my life obsessively researching a random old dead white man who liked fish. Um, but here we are. It started, Lulu says, with an anecdote from a tour in a science museum. The 1906 San Francisco earthquake sent David Starr Jordan's life's work, 30 years of meticulous naming and categorization of thousands of fish, carefully labeled in jars, crashing to the ground. But rather than give up, this guy not only immediately got to work rebuilding his collection, he also introduced a brand new innovation. He started attaching the label directly to the fish. 
And the the tour guide showed us one of these fish that had its name, literally its scientific name, like sewn to the flesh. Every day, you know, we're, we're faced with the reality that chaos will overcome us, that like our world is that we are so small in the face of all the forces that will undo us. And um, and here was a person who, instead of just accepting that, seemed to keep fighting it. And and I think I, I just wondered, like from a very pure, simplistic uh, place, like what became of you? This is a real person. Um, what becomes of you when you fight chaos? And I think in a just almost overly simplistic way, I wanted to know if he kind of ended up humiliated and a fool or if he was, if this attitude helped him in life. What began as an idea for a short essay turned into something much bigger. As Lulu researched David Star Jordan, she learned more about the places his unrelenting drive to bring order to chaos took him. And then I came across the idea that according to modern day taxonomists, fish do not exist. It is not a scientifically meaningful category. That's right. If you read her book, you will learn that fish do not, in fact, exist. It sounds crazy. Something so simple that you're 100% sure you know is true. And it's wrong. So even though this guy, David Starr Jordan, spent his entire life trying to organize just one aspect of nature, after his death, all that work revealed an even deeper and more complex chaos. There felt like something really important to understand there. And I think that's when it clicked together like, oh, we have a, a parable on our hands um, that happens to be 100% true. And, and th- I think that was the moment where I still didn't even really understand what it meant to say that fish don't exist, but I felt this calling to try to figure it out and understand what that meant. I'm not going to tell you how it's possible that fish don't exist. You'll have to read Lulu's book to find out. But the whole concept of taxonomy, of placing things into hierarchies and categories, it's true in so many different aspects of life, far beyond the study of biology. In the LGBTQ community, we have our own kind of taxonomy. When we come out, we come out as a category. Gay, trans, bi, queer, pansexual, non-binary. It's all there under one simple umbrella, LGBTQ+. Or if you're being really inclusive, LGBTQQIP2SAA+. Plus. While that's the clunkiest mouthful to say, and on one, re- on one hand, I don't love that, just from a like, it's hard to say. <laughs> um, I actually think the sign of more letters is this beautiful push to show the nuance and just to say like, with you know, with each each time we cast a category, we realize there is more. There's more complexity than what we can even name or group together. There is a lot of value in labels. Labels help us find people like us. They help us communicate who we are and what we need. But I think it's important to always remember that at best, these are proxies. Like they are ways to sort of talk about things, but we should always be alive to the nuance and complexity underneath those names. And I'm almost feel like I'm pushing back toward like, let's just have a a loose, sloppy, gerrymandered catch-all like queer, which is analogous to fish, like one sloppy term that has us all inside. Um, Like, there's something I intuitively like about that more because it's just like a little bit different than the norm, (laughs) you know? 
queer feels exciting to me because it feels like this big party that all kinds of people can attend. Um, and, and you can exist on whatever spectrum within that that you feel like speaks to you. You have to have these labels and categories in order to communicate and understand something, right? Even though queerness exists without the labels, right? Like in your book, there's, you kind of have it at, towards the end, you have that moment where regardless of, you didn't need a label like bisexual or queer to inherently understand that you were attracted to your now wife. So on that note, it's like, you don't need the label to experience that. It's really for everyone else to understand it really, right? Right. Or like, I think that the, so here's, okay, two thoughts on that. So one is like, you know, the label, as we all know, can be horribly constricting and limiting. And I think the danger with a label with a name is that it's not just um, an inactive process to name something. A name usually almost always comes with a set of predictive qualities. If you are this, you will behave this way. It means this to be this name. As we create labels and the definitions that accompany them, the lines become more rigid. Lulu told us about this thing called the Zygarntif effect. Zygarntif. Bluma Zygarntif discovered that people were twice as likely to remember something that they hadn't finished. People use this as a tool to beat procrastination. If you take one step, the rest will follow. But when it comes to naming things, finishing that definition hides it away. Basically, it's the idea that once you name something, once you categorize it and find a place for it in your brain, you put it away on a shelf. It gets dusty, becomes a bit more dormant, as Lulu says, in your mind, in your heart, and literally in your processing power. Whereas when something is unnamed, it's like a worry that's nagging at you or an image, your actual processing, it's like more alive in your brain. It's more on your mind, your ability to recollect it and think about it is quicker. And so, you know, it's hard to ask humans not to name their world. I'm not going that far. Like we have to, you know, like we have to, we have to throw labels on things to even be, try to talk. There's just a danger of, of almost like once you name it, you stop looking at it, you stop being curious about it. And you, you know, with anything that's as fundamental and powerful and as big a part of life experience as your sexual orientation, your sexual identity. I think there's a craving for fluidity where, even though I know it's like not realistic for us in a certain sense to be able to talk about who we are and talk about policy and talk about change. Like I get why we have the names, but I think part of me longs for a more fluid definition. When you talked about queerness being this kind of like great term that feels like everyone can come to the party, a label like that allows this group of people who are the LGBTQ plus or LGBTQIA or however many acronyms you'd like to, or letters you'd like to go through, but it allows them to kind of get together, harness all of their power and create this broader category that affects change. Yeah. And, and that's like a very exciting play, right? It's like, and we are Captain Planet Queer. Like, just totally. Like, it, it just invites more people and more experiences. And I think, you know, like in my own, I think this is probably common for a lot of people, but even in my own upbringing or just growing up experience, I think 
I had this very clear definition and image of lesbian, like growing up in the 80s. Um, and in certain ways, the image and the definition, and this is my own internalized homophobia, but like it didn't fit for me. And I remember, you know, there was like a teacher in middle school who was a very out lesbian. And I didn't feel like, I didn't feel like a connection with her. I didn't see myself in her. And therefore I think I shell, I did the, I did the Zergernov thing where I was like, that's a lesbian. That doesn't feel like me. So I shelved it away and then didn't even look at it. I didn't even think I might be like, there was almost just a, I exist outside of that category. So this unrealized, very powerful, lusty attraction I feel to this one friend of mine <laughs> couldn't be that like I didn't even I think I didn't even register it as a sexual um attraction because I had shelved away because like the definition of lesbian the label of lesbian felt so limiting in that era and it felt so outside of me and then slowly over time as I got you know just more and more exposure to different ways of <laughs> being queer um that started to open up and, and then like I and, but then I remember I had this very vivid moment like the f sort of first time I realized okay I'm attracted to women and I, I did date a woman in college for a bit like I remember looking back and being like oh that was a crush that was a sexual feeling but I hadn't even registered it on some level again I think because of of these categories that I that were too tight that were too constrictive and and I didn't even let myself explore it. And so that's the kind of thing where the rigidity, I think, can be um, not useful at best and, and extremely harmful at worst. As the categories within the queer community become more specific and more nuanced, they help us deal with the inner chaos that comes with discovering and embracing our sexual and gender identities. And even though most of us have the urge to organize and label things, Lulu says there's a lot of comfort to be found in the chaos. You know, I think when I was younger, the chaos frightened me a little bit more. It made me feel so small and it made me feel like, you know, just there was no guarantee that anything I would do would work out and that I'd ever get what I want. And I still feel that. I still totally feel that. But now I think I've come to terms with like, yeah, and chaos has better things in store than what you could even think to want. Like that this is the, you know, this is the tilt a whirl we are riding and like our job is simply to be alert and and to like watch the gifts and surprises, you know, and pain that it throws our way. Today, Lulu's married. My wife and I, her name is Grace, have been together for, I think, seven years, married for four. Um, we've gone through the, you know, having having a child as queer's journey. And, um, you know, it just keeps, like, I think it's just, it just keeps getting better and better. Um, and it's a life that, you know, even just a decade ago, I could have never seen for myself. Their son is almost two. Um, and he's walking all around, tons of tons of teeth and um, just, you know, I mean, he has been like, it's been such an interesting time with first COVID and now this huge 
It's just super important national reckoning where everything feels unstable in ways that are so good and needed. But, you know, with everything feeling disorienting, he has just been, he has just been such a centering um, force amidst amidst a lot being unknown. Um, But it's been an interesting time to to get to spend more and more time with him because we're, no one could go anywhere and there's no daycare, you know? <laughs> when we let go of the things we think we know, for example, like the idea that fish exist, we give ourselves permission to discover all kinds of nuance and freedom. Okay, if our definition of fish is wrong, if that's a ger- gerrymandered sloppy category that is just in place to preserve a sense of distance, what else do we have wrong? What else might not be right? Um, and, you know, I remember I was just like, I was slowly falling in love with this woman who was very hard not to fall in love with. Um, but I think I still kept it in the realm of like, this is a fun indulgence um, until hopefully either this this curly haired man that I'd been with for seven years, you know, maybe he'll take me back or I'll find, like, I I think I need a man to feel safe, X, Y, and Z, whatever image, whatever category, like, of a taller man that just I thought I needed to curl into to feel stable or something, you know, like, there are these, these images. And, and then I remember just, like, we had gone out, it was a Sunday night, and she worked, um, out in rural Maryland. And she was like, there's this really beautiful spot near the river. Let's just, let's just camp and then get up early and then you can go into work. And it was like a Sunday night. You think the weekend's over, but like she has this quality. She can make anything into play. And so we go, she grabs like an apple and a potato and like a match. And I don't even know. And we, and we just go out, we barely pack and we set up we didn't even set up a tent. We just like put a blanket near this Potomac River, which actually was kind of ugly. But then like through her eyes, it looked so beautiful. And then the sunset and it actually got really beautiful and all like confectioner sugar pink. And um, and then she was like, OK, let's build a fire. And there was she literally had like one match and it was leaves. And then she made a fire and then she took this potato and like wrapped it in trash tinfoil that was already there. And I was like, and you know, and then we talked and we watched the sunset and I was like, this is a magical, like she just punched a journey into a crappy Sunday night. Like you think the weekend's over and she just made fire out of a wet leaf and she just made food out of like a piece of tinfoil and conversation like out of nothing. And I, I think I was just like lying awake thinking, Wow, your image of what you think to feel safe and partnered and good in the world is off. And you dum-dum, you are lying right next to like something safer and stronger and more bottomless, you know, just more everlasting gobstopper of who knows, ideas, adventure, conversation. Let go. Like it was just like fish. Like that that was it. Let go of the category of who you think you are, what your sexual identity is, what you think you need. It was just like let go. If you can make this girl yours for life, you are lucky. Like then it just switched very quickly to like that was the moment where I was just like smiling at what a f- fool I had been to not see that 
you know, immediately. But like that, I think that was really the moment for me. And interestingly, as I'm saying it now, I'm like, yeah, I was looking up at the stars. Like when you give up the stars, you get a universe, like feeling the world rearranged of just this cruddy spot by the Potomac in Maryland. Um, and just thinking, oh my God, you give that up and, and, and then you get a world like this. We're going to take a quick break. But when we come back, we'll talk about the moment in Lulu's childhood that set off lifelong existential ruminations and give you a couple reasons to stick around in life and after the break. Welcome back. Today we're talking to radio producer and author Lulu Miller about chaos, taxonomy, and the limitations and the freedom that comes with categories. But on the other hand, letting go of the guardrails that guide you through the world can be disorienting. In the beginning of her book, Lulu reflects on a monumental moment in her childhood. When she was around seven years old, she turned to her scientist father and asked, what's the meaning of life? And he just said, oh, nothing. There's no point. There's no purpose. There's no God. There's no destiny. There's no plan. You were made by chaos. You'll soon be killed by chaos and the world doesn't care about you. Uh, would you like a bagel? Like it just was. And, and, <laughs> and he was so, he was like, just so, you know, don't let that make you sad though. You know? And, and I remember just kind of being shocked, like, oh, there's no, there's no point to life. There's no point to any of this. We don't matter at all. It just felt chilling and but also like if if i accepted it he seemed so joyful i thought okay if i just if i just go with this this is the path toward living well um and yeah and then i think it just and some days that is a really freeing liberating thought carpe diem why not take the risk if none of this matters anyway you know kiss the person say the thing we'll all be dead soon um but but then on on other days when you know stuff feels harder and and you're thinking well if there's no point and all i've been feeling is bad for a while maybe i'll just if it doesn't matter why stick around did did you ever i mean obviously it's in your book now so the whole world knows about this story (laughs) but as an adult was there ever a time when you talked to him about the impact that that moment had i love debating stuff with him i love talking about big ideas with him um and I think we did have a conversation after the book came out, finally, where I was just like, uh, you know, is this something you ever struggle with? Does this worldview ever make things harder on a hard day? And he just still is this like, he just still was basically like, no, you know, like he has this flippant way of being in the world. Um, So... No, I guess in a weird way, it's so weird how you can be so close to people, but also just avoid major topics. Honestly, your book has changed the way I've thought of a lot of things. No matter who you are, what challenges you're up against, you can find some way to make your life have meaning and matter. And even if it's small things you're doing within your community or with someone that you love or your roommate to make their life better, that's what really matters. Uh, One idea that I came across in all this that didn't quite make it into the book, but feels like in there in spirit is, so I read this beautiful book called Stay by Jennifer Michael Hecht. And she just, she's a 
historian of philosophy, and she looks at all the non-religious reasons that philosophers have made over the ages of why we shouldn't kill ourselves. And and she was interested in not like in the, the God says you shouldn't because you'll go to hell. She didn't really care about that. She wanted to know other cases that you shouldn't. And the book is just this like amazing compendium of, of smart things people have said to stick around, <laughs> reasons to stick around. And um, one of them was from this uh, Talmudic scholar named Emmanuel Levinas. The argument Levinas makes is that we can't know if anything we see, smell, hear, touch, and taste is empirically true. We might see an orange cat. We can agree that it's an orange cat, but our perception is manufactured within our brains. The only thing we know to be real is the interactions between people. Like that is what comprises the fabric of reality. Like that's all that we know for sure exists. Um, and there's something so powerful. And, and then the kind of next thought is like, and when you take yourself out, you're, you're actually making the fabric, the matter of the world more threadbare. And that does have cascading effects to those around you. Um, and so almost in a like interdependence ecology argument, <laughs> you should stick around because that's, that's the only stuff we know is real. And, and when you take yourself out, it actually like injures the world. Have, have you ever felt jealous of people that with certainty believe in a God and that that belief gives them purpose? Because I know I definitely have thought like, oh, I wish that I believed that strongly that nothing, you know what I mean? It, I, no matter what I'm dealing with, I can just think like, mm, God is yeah. good and he will get me through this. Have you ever felt jealous of people? No, completely. Oh, Beyond completely. I like totally envy them. And I know that some of them struggle with doubt and that doubt is a big part of faith. Um, but I think that sense that what you're doing adds up or that there's like a safe place eventually to get to, um, or someone's watching out for you as long as you behave well, like, oh God, yeah, like I would love that. Or I think I would, maybe I wouldn't. Maybe I love being not watched. Maybe there's a there's like a real juicy freedom in that. Um, you know, I do think obviously religion has caused all kinds, has just been the reason for all kinds of horrific events. Um, but there are, you know, like there is this incentive baked into it to be to be good in certain ways and be humble and, and love thy neighbor. And like, I do think some of, you know, some of that stuff, if you obey it in the right way, and if you follow it in the right way, like is really beautiful for community. You know, we live in a capitalistic society and there are all kinds of amazing people fighting to do, you know, to work outside of that. But a lot of it is incentive, like a lot of our lives are incentivized by how good you can be at your job. That's not always, that does not, Oh, you know, like people who do well and succeed in society often don't actually care about others and they're not actually punished for it. <laughs> there are a few people in positions of power that have displayed time and time again that they don't care about people. One of those people just held a poorly attended political rally in Tulsa, Oklahoma, where he encouraged people not to wear masks. While the crowd was smaller than anticipated, there were still a lot of people at the rally, many of them not wearing masks, even as those six staffers tested positive for the virus. This as the city of Tulsa hits record numbers of its own. If karma's a thing, that person would get coronavirus. There's still time, though. Anyway, speaking of old white dudes being wrong, the second half of Lulu's book takes an unexpected turn. 
David Starr Jordan. Remember him? The ichthyologist that sewed the labels right to the fish? He goes from categorizing fish to categorizing people, and he becomes a huge proponent of eugenics. As we as a nation make a point to address the white supremacist underpinnings of our society, eugenics feels like something we need to talk about. The word eugenics comes from Greek, and it means good stock or well-born. It was an idea that was first coined by Charles Darwin's cousin, Francis Galton. Francis read on the origin of species and thought, if natural selection is this force shaping plants and animals, what if we applied that to people and bred out inequalities we consider unfit? And so it was just this idea that you could create a, a master race of humans by either um, encouraging people you consider to be superior to have more babies or restricting people who you consider to be inferior to have less babies and or, you know, that eventually went to the Nazis with actually um, killing people. If you grew up in the U.S., you probably didn't learn about eugenics in school. And you probably thought that ideas like these were restricted to Nazi Germany or the Soviet Union or basically anywhere besides the United States. In reality, it started here. It was huge. It was wildly popular in America um, for most of, you know, the first sort of quarter of the 20th century. The first five American presidents were in favor of it. It was taught in college classes as this very scientifically sound idea, a way of like solving society's woes. They, they, they believed that things like criminality, as they called it, or quote, feeble-mindedness, uh, which could mean everything from like a low score and a standardized test to promiscuity. Um, they believe that all these things, basically illness, criminality, quote unquote, feeble-mindedness could be excised from society um, via sterilization was kind of the path that the American eugenicists finally settled on. They thought that that was the humane way to get rid of people they considered unfit. At first, states began passing mandatory sterilization laws, meaning that if you were deemed unfit for whatever reason, you had no choice but to be sterilized. There was nothing you could do. As more and more states started passing these laws, one case was appealed and taken all the way to the Supreme Court. In 1927, they voted 8 to 1 in favor of it, making forced sterilization national policy. And that case paved the way to over 60,000 sterilizations um, performed in the name of, you know, eugenic ideology, likely more than six, likely, likely way more than 60,000. Um, those were majority focused on people who had mental illness, epilepsy, disabilities, um, and then people of color were unsurprisingly disproportionately targeted in this movement. Um, a third of women living in Puerto Rico during a certain era in the early 1900s, a third of women were sterilized. Um, black women in North Carolina were sought out by eugenics boards and sterilized. Um, around over 2,000 Native American women were sterilized, a lot of them in the 70s. And so this went on and on insidiously in our, in our country. And actually, the, the ruling has never been overturned. Not only was sterilization and eugenics the norm in government, it was also a buzzword in advertising. One scholar said we use the word eugenic almost like the way we use organic, like it was slapped onto cosmetics and cars. And um, it was this very positive term that we were real like leaders in the field of an early, not an early 
a poster in support of Hitler said, we don't stand alone. Um, and it had an American flag on it saying, like, other people are, are sterilizing. It makes you wonder, who is missing from society because of the lines we cut? How many people within the queer community would have been victims of forced sterilization if we were living just a hundred years earlier? And you learn that we fought, I mean, it's such a part of American identity is that we were the people that called it out and we valiantly fought against it. And it's like, no, we actually were. The idea didn't come from some mysterious evil German other, like it, it actually gained its footing here. And we were the first in the world to legalize eugenic sterilization properties in the world. Given that we didn't, I didn't get that education in school, how would you take it upon yourself to educate your child about systemic racism, homophobia, transphobia? You know, I think that there'll be both what we do proactively just by like the kinds of books we're reading and the kinds of places we're taking him to and, um, you know, just the the images and ideas we're exposing to him Um And then it's going to be how we answer questions. And like some of it, I think, you know, I don't know, I'm not an expert on child (laughs) rearing development, like what age is appropriate to talk about what thing. And in all likelihood, it'll get a little sloppy sometimes, Lulu says. She and her wife are raising a little white man. And I think we have a lot of, my wife and I have a lot of work in front of us just to constantly show like, hey, you got spat out on top of a very destructive hierarchy. And there, you know, we just have to constantly as a family be thinking of ways that like we have to admit our privilege and then try to use it for good. After our conversation, Lulu sent over a passage from essayist and storyteller Megan Stilstra. It's a photo of a section underlined in pen. Megan realizes why her best friend Daya, who's black, wouldn't let her kids play with the water guns in the front yard. The passage reads... As a black mother, she has to talk to her black son about how to walk in this world and not be harmed. And as a white mother, I have to talk to my white son about how to walk in this world and not perpetuate that harm. To stand up when we see it and fight it like a dragon. In the current moment, the year 2020, the United States looks like all kinds of chaos. You know, there's just so many hundreds of thousands of millions of people in this country saying like, you know, we've tried reforming the order, we've tried everything. And like, I think the only course of action now is to just burn it down and like that. And and so what does, I think like just listening to that and hearing that and, listening to all the ways it's broken like i think like it is an insanely chaotic time and and therefore there is so much potential in it there's so much beauty in it there's so much destruction and rot and horrible things and i'm not trying to downplay that but um i feel like the path forward is is to like just dive into the chaos and and try to see it as clearly as we can for like all the messages it's bringing and all the gifts it's bringing If your son asks you the same question you asked your dad, how would you answer Uh, that question? Damn you, Levi. Damn (laughs) you. I don't know. I don't know. I'm I'm feeling like he still only really got 11 words, so I feel like safely far away from that. But yeah, that's a great question. What am I going to say? I don't know. It's hard. It's hard. Um, 
What would I say? What would I say? Okay, can you like pretend to be, how would you, okay, let's go there. Okay, we're strolling down the street in Chicago and he's 10 and he's like rocking a cool baseball cap. Then he turns to me and says, Mom, uh, what's the meaning of life? Do I matter? Well, I think that there is no clear meaning. There's no one meaning, but there are a profound Oh, there are there are many there are many ways to make meaning and that is one of the most joyful and important tasks we have ahead is to figure out how we want to make meaning to love the people that we love and to share that love with people who need love i think that caring for others makes a concrete difference in the social fabric of the world and um i think that the meaning of of life is what you choose to make of it and you have a very important and exciting choice ahead and i'm always here to help you think about it and talk about it i don't know how's that that's so wishy-washy but that's that might be we might need to workshop it I think the the alteration I would make is like, I do think I would not be afraid to share some of my, if we go there to like, I would not be afraid to share some of my atheist worldviews, but I would, I would also share them as a, like, this is my belief. Other people believe other things. Um, But what's really exciting, I don't think I would say there's no meaning. I think I would say what's really exciting is as a person you have the ability to matter. You do matter a lot to the people around you. And it's really exciting to think about how you might be able to change the lives of those you love and society. And that stuff matters more than anything. I think that's what I would say is like, you have a choice and an ability to choose your meaning. uh, And let's, let's strategize for a lifetime on how to, how to do that most effectively. Go read or listen to Lulu's book, Why Fish Don't Exist. It's fantastic. Check out the podcast she co-founded, Invisibilia, if you haven't already. You won't regret it. And go listen to Nancy. Pride is a production of Straw Hut Media. If you like the show, leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Share us with your friends, subscribe, and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Pride. You can follow me at Levi Chambers. Pride is produced by me, Levi Chambers, Maggie Bowles, and Ryan Tillotson. Edited by Sebastian Alcala. Please stay safe, stay healthy, stay home, and listen to podcasts. I mean, if I'm your son, then I'm sure right after you say that, I'll say, okay, great, then let's get a bagel. Yeah. (laughs)
Let's get some ice cream. 